Section 5 of the History of England from the Accession of James the Second. Volume 3, Chapter 14. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of England from the Accession of James the Second. Volume 3, Chapter 14, by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Section 5. Just at this time the prospects of James, which had seemed hopelessly dark, began to brighten. The danger which had unnerved him had roused the Irish people. They had, six months before, risen up as one man against the Saxons. The army which Tyrconnell had formed was, in proportion to the population from which it was taken, the largest that Europe had ever seen. But that army had sustained a long succession of defeats and disgraces, unredeemed by a single brilliant achievement. It was the fashion, both in England and on the continent, to ascribe those defeats and disgraces to the pusillanimity of the Irish race. That this was a great error is sufficiently proved by the history of every war which has been carried on in any part of Christendom during five generations. The raw material out of which a good army may be formed existed in great abundance among the Irish. Avaux informed his government that they were a remarkably handsome, tall, and well-made race, that they were personally brave, that they were sincerely attached to the cause for which they were in arms, that they were violently exasperated against the colonists. After extolling their strength and spirit, he proceeded to explain why it was that, with all their strength and spirit, they were constantly beaten. It was vain, he said, to imagine that bodily prowess, animal courage, or patriotic enthusiasm would, in the day of battle, supply the place of discipline. The infantry were ill-armed and ill-trained. They were suffered to pillage wherever they went. They had contracted all the habits of banditti. There was among them scarcely one officer capable of showing them their duty. Their colonels were generally men of good family, but men who had never seen service. The captains were butchers, tailors, shoemakers, Hardly one of them troubled himself about the comforts, the accoutrements, or the drilling of those over whom he was placed. The dragoons were little better than the infantry. But the horse were, with some exceptions, excellent. Almost all the Irish gentlemen who had any military experience held commissions in the cavalry, and by the exertions of these officers some regiments had been raised in disciplines which Avaux pronounced equal to any that he had ever seen. It was therefore evident that the inefficiency of the foot and of the dragoons was to be ascribed to the vices, not of the Irish character, but of the Irish administration. The events which took place in the autumn of 1689 sufficiently proved that the ill-fated race, which enemies and allies generally agreed in regarding with unjust contempt, had together with the faults inseparable from poverty, ignorance, and superstition, some fine qualities, which have not always been found in more prosperous and more enlightened communities. The evil tidings which terrified and bewildered James stirred the whole population of the southern provinces, like the peal of a trumpet sounding to battle. That Ulster was lost, that the English were coming, that the death grapple between the two hostile nations was at hand, was proclaimed from all the altars of three and twenty counties. One last chance was left, and, if that chance failed, nothing remained but the despotic, the merciless rule of the Saxon colony and of the heretical church. The Roman Catholic priest who had just taken possession of the glebe house and the chancel, 
the Roman Catholic squire, who had just been carried back on the soldiers of the shouting tenantry into the hall of his fathers, would be driven forth to live on such alms as peasants, themselves oppressed and miserable, could spare. A new confiscation would complete the work of the act of settlement, and the followers of William would seize whatever the followers of Cromwell had spared. These apprehensions produced such an outbreak of patriotic and religious enthusiasm as deferred for a time the inevitable day of subjugation. Avaux was amazed by the energy which, in circumstances so trying, the Irish displayed. It was indeed the wild and unsteady energy of a half-barbarous people. It was transient, it was often misdirected, but though transient and misdirected, it did wonders. The French ambassador was forced to own that those officers of whose incompetency and inactivity he had so often complained had suddenly shaken off their lethargy. Recruits came in by thousands. The ranks which had been thinned under the walls of Londonderry were soon again full to overflowing. Great efforts were made to arm and clothe the troops, and in the short space of a fortnight everything presented a new and cheering aspect. The Irish required of the king, in return for their strenuous exertions in his cause, one concession which was by no means agreeable to him. The unpopularity of Melfort had become such that his person was scarcely safe. He had no friend to speak a word in his favour. The French hated him. In every letter which arrived at Dublin from England or from Scotland, he was described as the evil genius of the House of Stuart. It was necessary for his own sake to dismiss him. An honourable pretext was found. He was ordered to repair to Versailles, to represent there the state of affairs in Ireland, and to implore the French government to send over without delay six or seven thousand veteran infantry. He laid down the seals, and they were, to the great delight of the Irish, put into the hands of an Irishman, Sir Richard Nagel, who had made himself conspicuous as Attorney-General and Speaker of the House of Commons. Melfort took his departure under cover of the night, for the rage of the populace against him was such that he could not without danger show himself in the streets of Dublin by day. On the following morning, James left his capital in the opposite direction to encounter Schomberg. Schomberg had landed in Antrim. The force which he had brought with him did not exceed ten thousand men. But he expected to be joined by the armed colonists and by the regiments which were under Kirk's command. The coffee-house politicians of London fully expected that such a general, with such an army, would speedily reconquer the island. Unhappily, it soon appeared that the means which had been furnished to him were altogether inadequate to the work which he had to perform. Of the greater part of these means, he was speedily deprived by a succession of unforeseen calamities, and the whole campaign was merely a long struggle maintained by his prudence and resolution against the utmost spite of fortune. He marched first to Carrickfergus. That town was held for James by two regiments of infantry. Schomberg battered the walls, and the Irish, after holding out a week, capitulated. He promised that they should depart unharmed, but he found it no easy matter to keep his word. The people of the town and neighborhood were generally Protestants of Scottish extraction. They had suffered much during the short ascendancy of the native race, and what they had suffered they were now eager to retaliate. They assembled in great multitudes, exclaiming that the capitulation was nothing to them, and that they would be revenged they soon proceeded from words to blows. The Irish, disarmed, stripped, and hustled, clung for protection to the English officers and soldiers. Schomberg with difficulty prevented a massacre by spurring, pistol in hand, through the throng of the enraged colonists. 
From Carrickfergus Schomberg proceeded to Lisburn, and thence, through towns left without an inhabitant, and over plains on which not a cow, nor a sheep, nor a stack of corn was to be seen, to Laubrickland. Here he was joined by three regiments of Inniskelliners, whose dress, horses, and arms looked strange to eyes accustomed to the pomp of reviews, but who in natural courage were inferior to no troops in the world, and who had, during months of constant watching and skirmishing, acquired many of the essential qualities of soldiers. Schomberg continued to advance towards Dublin through a desert. The few Irish troops which remained in the south of Ulster retreated before him, destroying as they retreated. Newry, once a well-built and thriving Protestant borough, he found a heap of smoking ashes. Carlingford, too, had perished. The spot where the town had once stood was marked only by the massy remains of the old Norman castle. Those who ventured to wander from the camp reported that the country, as far as they could explore it, was a wilderness. There were cabins, but no inmates. There was rich pasture, but neither flock nor herd. There were cornfields, but the harvest lay on the ground soaked with rain. While Schomberg was advancing through a vast solitude, the Irish forces were rapidly assembling from every quarter. On the 10th of September the royal standard of James was unfurled on the tower of Drogheda, and beneath it were soon collected twenty thousand fighting men, the infantry generally bad, the cavalry generally good, but both infantry and cavalry full of zeal for their country and their religion. The troops were attended, as usual, by a great multitude of camp-followers, armed with Siths, half-pikes, and skeins. By this time Schomberg had reached Dundalk. The distance between the two armies was not more than a long day's march. It was therefore generally expected that the fate of the island would speedily be decided by a pitched battle. In both camps, all who did not understand war were eager to fight, and in both camps, the few who had a high reputation for military science were against fighting. Neither Rosen nor Schomberg wished to put everything on a cast. Each of them knew intimately the defects of his own army, and neither of them was fully aware of the defects of the other's army. Rosen was certain that the Irish infantry were worse equipped, worse officered, and worse drilled than any infantry that he had ever seen from the Gulf of Bothnia to the Atlantic, and he supposed that the English troops were well trained, and were, as they doubtless ought to have been, amply provided with everything necessary to their efficiency. Numbers, he rightly judged, would avail little against a great superiority of arms and discipline. He therefore advised James to fall back, and even to abandon Dublin to the enemy, rather than hazard a battle, the loss of which would be the loss of all. Athlone was the best place in the kingdom for a determined stand. The passage of the Shannon might be defended till the succors which Melfort had been charged to solicit came from France, and those succors would change the whole character of the war. But the Irish, with Tyrconnell at their head, were unanimous against retreating. The blood of the whole nation was up. James was pleased with the enthusiasm of his subjects, and positively declared that he would not disgrace himself by leaving his capital to the invaders without a blow. In a few days it became clear that Schomberg had determined not to fight. His reasons were weighty. He had some good Dutch and French troops. The Inniskilliners who had joined him had served a military apprenticeship, though not in a very regular manner. But the bulk of his army consisted of English peasants who had just left their cottages, his musketeers had still to learn how to load their pieces, his dragoons had still to learn how to manage their horses, and these inexperienced recruits were, for the most part, commanded by officers as inexperienced as themselves. 
His troops were therefore not generally superior in discipline to the Irish, and were, in number, far inferior. Nay, he found that his men were almost as ill-armed, as ill-lodged, as ill-clad, as the Celts to whom they were opposed. The wealth of the English nation and the liberal votes of the English Parliament had entitled him to expect that he should be abundantly supplied with all the munitions of war. But he was cruelly disappointed. The administration had, ever since the death of Oliver, been constantly becoming more and more imbecile, more and more corrupt, and now the revolution reaped what the restoration had sown. A crown of negligent or ravenous functionaries, formed under Charles and James, plundered, starved, and poisoned the armies and fleets of William. Of these men the most important was Henry Shales, who, in the late reign, had been commissary-general to the camp at Hounslow. It is difficult to blame the new government for continuing to employ him, for in his own department his experience far surpassed that of any other Englishman. Unfortunately, in the same school in which he had acquired his experience, he had learned the whole art of peculation. The beef and brandy which he furnished were so bad that the soldiers turned from them with loathing. The tents were rotten, the clothing was scanty, the muskets broke in the handling. Great numbers of shoes were set down to the account of the government, but in two months after the treasury had paid the bill, the shoes had not arrived in Ireland. The means of transporting baggage and artillery were almost entirely wanting. An ample number of horses had been purchased in England with the public money, and had been sent to the banks of the Dee. But Shales had let them out for harvest work to the farmers of Cheshire, had pocketed the hire, and had left the troops in Ulster to get on as best they might. Schomberg thought that, if he should, with an ill-trained and ill-appointed army, risk a battle against a superior force, he might not improbably be defeated, and he knew that a defeat might be followed by the loss of one kingdom, perhaps by the loss of three kingdoms. He therefore made up his mind to stand on the defensive, till his men had been disciplined, and till reinforcements and supplies should arrive. He entrenched himself near Dundalk in such manner that he could not be forced to fight against his will. James, emboldened by the caution of his adversary, and disregarding the advice of Rosen, advanced to R.D., appeared at the head of the whole Irish army before the English lines, drew up horse, foot, and artillery, in order of battle, and displayed his banner. The English were impatient to fall on. But their general had made up his mind, and was not to be moved by the bravados of the enemy, or by the murmurs of his own soldiers. During some weeks he remained secure within his defences, while the Irish lay a few miles off. He set himself assiduously to drill those new levies which formed the greater part of his army. He ordered the musketeers to be constantly exercised in firing, sometimes at marks and sometimes by platoons, and from the way in which they at first acquitted themselves it plainly appeared that he had judged wisely in not leading them out to battle. It was found that not one in four of the English soldiers could manage his piece at all, and whoever succeeded in discharging it, no matter in what direction, thought that he had performed a great feat. End of section 5